Hi, everybody. Good lunch? Well, I feel very cathedrally and uh, dearly beloved and generally. Thank you so much for coming along. Um, so we're here to talk about the church and the NHS. Um, just pop the next slide up, Sandy. We're just kind of going to go through and sort of say, interested, I'm going to... It's after lunch, isn't it? You are all friends now. That's what Will was saying earlier. You're all good friends. So I'm going to ask you in a second to turn to the person next to you and find out why you came to this seminar. Um, I'm going to try and tell you a little bit about the national plan in terms of how spirituality is meant to be addressed within the NHS. And um, then we're going to think about what does that mean for us if I'm a, a patient or a professional. I'm, I'm going to use the word patient because I'm a doctor. I also know that service users, etc., are other terms, but I, I sort of default to patients, so sorry about that. What are the boundaries? What else can we do about this? So that's what we're going to try and get through. But put the next slide up, Sandy. I would like you to have a little think about what's your interest in the church in the NHS, and perhaps what's your experience been? Most of us will have experienced the NHS in some shape or form, perhaps just when we were born. Um, but have you had experience recently? Was spirituality part of that? And also maybe say to the person next to you, what do you hope to get out of today? So two or three minutes for that, off you go. Okay. Okay, thank you. I'm not going to take any feedback just from that small group, but we will hopefully have some time for questions at the end, and there's some other small group stuff we might get a mic round for. Let's have a bit of a think about the NHS. Just pop the next slide up. It was founded on the 5th of July. 1948 by a chap called Anurin Bevin who was a, a sort of visionary politician who decided that we ought to have free health care for everybody um, of top quality within the UK and of course you have to think what was happening prior to that and the, the best example I have of that is the doctor in Downton Abbey which is you had the little cottage hospital and then you had big hospital uphill and they were fighting against each other and one had the Duchess Dowager and you know and it wasn't free you had to pay for it and with the experiences after World War I that we saw in Downton Abbey, 
they thought we've got to do it better after World War II. And it's a, it's a crazy thing to do after World War II, isn't it? It's to spend lots of money on the NHS um, because surely the country's trying to rebuild itself after the war. But they thought, no, we're going to do this. This is important for our boys and our girls who, who've come home. We want to found the NHS. But they had this theory. And the theory was that the burden of disease would slowly decrease. So they founded the NHS on a budget of 15,000 shillings or whatever it was back in those days. It wasn't, it wasn't that much money in today's terms, but it was a lot of money back then. And what they thought was that over time, the burden of disease would decrease. We'd help everybody who was injured in the war. We would educate people about the importance of fruit and veg and health problems would go away. Now, in actual fact, we know that's not true, do we? So if you pop the next slide up, Sandy, what we know is that um, the NHS budget has gone up every year since. Got the next slide there? The, the NHS budget has gone up. Sandy, next slide, please, thanks. The NHS budget has gone up every year since then. It's been going steadily up, and um, the spending has not decreased at all, and that's partly because we keep inventing new expensive things like cameras for surgery and chemotherapy and medication for mental health problems as well. And these things are expensive, and you could argue that the market there is causing problems. But it's also gone up because we've been actually making a lot of progress with some diseases, but there's other diseases. We're now facing a, a burden of dementia, primarily because people are living long enough to get dementia. You know, before, when the life expectancy was 60, 65, it, dementia wasn't as big a problem perhaps as it is today. But it's not getting any cheaper, is it? And so they've tried to do some things around this. And one of the things they've done is to think, well, let's have less hospital beds. And the graph on the right is the decline in hospital beds over the years since. I can't read it, but it's over about the last 20 years, decreasing the number of beds. And the mental health beds are the yellow section in between the dark bits at the top and the dark bits in the middle. That's the mental health beds. I would argue that the mental health beds have had a bigger squeeze than many of the other bits. So the blue at the bottom is the acute medical beds. They haven't changed that much, but there's been a massive decline in the mental health beds. Some of that's been good, and some of that perhaps has been a bit too far. Now, this is actually an opportunity as well, because this is an opportunity for the church. I don't know if picking up some of the slack is the right phrase, but I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. The NHS is going to be restricting itself, that's an opportunity for the church to do more. Cynically, it's one of the reasons why the politicians talk about things like big society, because they know they can't fund it all, nor should they. The NHS is never going to be holistic healthcare. It's always going to be the more medical end of it. So I'm going to do a very quick history lesson, and this is quite quick, and apology to those of you who in the seminar this morning, you've seen this picture before. If you put the next slide up, this is um, Bolton Abbey, which is near where I used to, used to live, and this was sort of knocked down by Henry VIII in sometime between 1536 and 1541, where he was going around the country and getting rid of a whole load of monasteries. And this was partly because there was a sort of Protestant Catholic, I want to be the king and not the Pope kind of argument going on. But it was also, when they shut the monasteries, they also shut lots of the schools and they shut lots of the hospitals because the monks were the people who were delivering the healthcare. So as well as dissolving the monasteries, Henry VIII basically got rid of most of the hospitals in, in the UK as well. And 
that was something that was a difficult situation until the NHS kind of came back on the scene. But what we have to remember is that, you know, prior to the 1600s, the church were doing the healthcare. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go out there and start doing operations or psychotherapy or, or things like that, but there's a lot of healthcare the church has done and can do again. The other thing that was happening, if we pop the next slide up, this is a picture of um, Nigel Hawthorne playing King George III in the film The Madness of King George. And I've put this up to illustrate another big thing in the history of mental health problems. So in 1788, the king became psychotic. He, he, there was a genetic illness. We've heard about the royal family having um, haemophilia. Well, they also have this tendency to have acute porphyria. Um, and what happens here is that the liver stops breaking down certain metabolites and there's a buildup of toxins in the body and um, you become psychotic. And the interesting thing was up until that point, although the doctors, so there's three doctors in the film who come in and want to sort of look at his urine and check his pulse and all this kind of stuff. There's three doctors who come in and the doctors had taken over physical health care. So you had the Royal College of Physicians, the College of Barber Surgeons, etc which is why doctors are, why surgeons are called Mr, because they used to be barbers, as in Sweeney Todd, the demon barber, and they weren't allowed to be called Misters. Um, they've now turned this into a pride statement. I'm not a doctor anymore, I've become a Mr because I'm a surgeon. I'm a doctor and a consultant, but I'm not a surgeon, so that often confuses people, but that was in between our two dates. What was happening now, the, the Royal College of Physicians had established, but mental illness was still the preserve of the church, so people were seen as, having sinned or having been physically sick uh, or, or, or possessed in, in some shape or form. So you've got a logical problem here because you've got someone who's mentally ill. What would normally happen is we'd get the local priest involved and the local priest would do some kind of ministry of deliverance or possibly an exorcism or an anointing or something like that to get rid of the sin or the demon or whatever it is. But the, the difficulty here is that the king is the Church of England head. So he's the priest's boss. And last time I tried to do an exorcism on my boss, it didn't go down very well. <laughs> so you can't say that the head of the Church of England is somehow sinful and flawed or something without the model exploding. So the way in which the model exploded was from that point on, mental illness began to be seen as a medical condition. Or actually in the film, it's something that responded to a behavioural intervention. Ironically, the guy who delivered it was a priest, but that's the subtlety of the film. But he was a, a behavioral therapist who came in and got the king better. And that was the start, really, of um, asylums and, and things like this, where, 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 where the medical people would be looking and getting involved. And, you know, a hundred years or so later, you've got Charcot and Freud and other people sort of talking about the medical approach to mental illness. So by the time you get to sort of 1900s, you've got psychiatric hospitals, and then the NHS enshrined them just before 1950. And that's where we are to today, where the vast majority of mental health care in this country is delivered by the NHS. Some is delivered by social work, social work departments, particularly through support workers and better housing and social inclusion, have got a huge amount to offer but it's social work in the NHS and the church has kind of been excluded from that. Although, of course, it hasn't. It's been doing this for a long, long time. 
the Catholic Church is the biggest landowner in the world. And one of the reasons for that is that it runs social inclusion projects all over the globe. The Anglican Church runs retreat centers, um, takes people in. There are still monasteries that, that take people in. Sometimes they just take them in and sometimes it's psychologically or pastorally informed as well. But this has never really stopped. But the public perception is that ever since the NHS came along and ever since we sort of became modern and scientific and that sort of stuff, it was done by the NHS. But there's not enough beds. There's not enough money. And that situation is only going to, to get worse. So the question is, what can the church do about it? And one of the sort of, again, myths and assumptions is that the church can't do anything about it because no one goes to church anymore. Um, now, I'm just going to put up a few slides just to suggest how, what an interesting situation that is. The British Social Attitudes Survey okay, said that 49% of people in this country practice some religion. The National Census in 2011 said 33.2 million people in the UK identified themselves as Christian. The Why Church Survey 2012 said 6% attend church weekly. The British Social Attitudes Survey 2015, 42% of people identified themselves as Christians. So when the National Secularist Society tell you that we live in a post-Christian country, it's not true. Okay? There are people leaving the established church, and some people would argue that perhaps there is a natural winnowing and refining that was needing to happen anyway. There has just been a crossover where just for the first time last year, slightly more than 50% of people said they're not Christian versus Christian. But it's not exactly a, a wipeout. You know, this is still a Christian country. The church is still a regularly attended institution. One of the stats we had up on the scrolling slides earlier is something like, you know, 40, 50 million people go to a place of worship, not just Christian, this is mosques as well, go to a place of worship at some point in the year. So the church is still at the hub of the local social community and there's a huge amount that can be done. And it's not just the stats and the numbers as well. The next slide, if you can, Sandy. There's a strong belief people have that there is a patterning to life, that this is a supernatural force and that there is a soul. 70%, 76% have had a religious and spiritual experience. Lower percentages have been taken prisoner by aliens in other surveys. This is mainstream UK, Christian Roots Contemporary Society. Large numbers of people are believing in God or something spiritual like that, and they want this taken into account. The World Health Organization says, this is a holistic, the next slide, Sandy, if you can, is a holistic definition of health, is a complete sense of physical, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. The World Health Organization, in their main website definition of health, that's what they say, spiritual well-being. They want people's spirituality to be addressed. And these two things are coming together, aren't they? You can see that the doctors are sort of perhaps saying, yes, you know, science and, and surgery and, and medicines and that kind of stuff. But actually, the people who run the NHS and the people who run the World Health Organization are saying it's got to be spiritual as well. It's got to be social as well. Because ever since the NHS was funded, we've been throwing money at the biological cure, and it's not got to the bottom of the problem. Now, I'm a doctor. I believe that medicine works, otherwise I couldn't do my job. I wouldn't be any integrity be able to take home a salary if I didn't think I was helping people. 
But it's not the whole question. The World Health Organization see that, and they want that in it. So there is a national strategy for spirituality in the NHS. You might not think there's a huge amount of it, but there, there is a national strategy. And the next slide there, Sandy, is to sort of see spirituality as the responsibility of everybody on the healthcare team. Now, sometimes this gets so watered down that it's no earthly use. So, you know, spirituality is not just being nice to people, okay? It, it has to be a bit more than that. It, it, it's part of it is being nice to people, but part of it is getting into that area of personhood, values, meaning, and for some, religion and specific personal faith. So, so spirituality explicitly should be every single person on the healthcare team. Spirituality isn't the icing on the cake. It should be mixed throughout the whole thing. And they talk about things called spiritual needs on the next slide. What they're saying about spiritual needs is that their meaning, purpose, love, harmonious relationships, a source of hope, strength, and trust, the expression of personal belief, the opportunity to perform spiritual practices, the need for creativity. So this is what the NHS defines as, as spiritual needs. Personally, as a Christian, I would take things a little bit further and say it's not just a spiritual need, it's a spiritual call or a spiritual imperative. So on the next slide, the, the Westminster Catechism, I think should pop up there. This was written um, a long, long, long time ago. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to worship God. So that's perhaps where Christianity differs from some of the definitions of spirituality all of which we'd agree with, but we'd also say, and worship God. Another example of that, there's a guy called John Swinton on the next slide, who's a, a learning disability, psychiatric learning disability nurse up in Aberdeen, and is a professor up there now in the School of Theology and Healthcare. And he says, spirituality is that aspect of human existence which gives it its meaningness, etc., etc., helps them deal with the vicissitudes of existence, the ups and downs of everyday life, vital dimensions, the quest for meaning, etc., 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 love, commitment, meaningful relationships, and for some, a sense of the holy among us. So this is mainstream NHS publications, okay, saying that this is actually really important for people. Now, I live in Scotland, and apart from the fact they're doing better in the rugby, we believe, or my wife who is Scottish, I'm actually from London, I'm from about three miles that way in New Malden, um, but my wife is Scottish and she believes very firmly that Scotland is a more enlightened country. Um, I have to say, as far as spirituality in the NHS is concerned, they're right. And the reason for that is that Scotland has been right up there saying, we need to embed this right from the start. Whereas what's happened in England and Wales a little bit is with NHS trusts and foundation trusts and independent bodies effectively, within reason, running it how they want to, quite a lot of places have seen losses in their chaplaincy, perhaps it's even got rid of and so on. But, but Scotland is an example of how to do it right a little bit. They've produced, on the next slide, they've produced this resource called Spiritual Care Matters. And this is something which, there's copies of this were sent to um, every team, every ward, every outpatient department in, in NHS Scotland. There's also something on the next slide, the Chief Executive's Letter. All health boards should what should all health boards do? This is direct instruction to health boards. I think it's there on the next slide, I hope. 
Is something going to appear there? No, it's not. So we go back, go back one there. I've got my animations mucked up here. All health boards should have appointed a senior lead manager, that's at board level, for spiritual care, okay? Have a spiritual care policy updated in the light of local need. Have a spiritual care chaplaincy service resourced to provide the necessary service throughout the year on a 24-hour basis. So that's from the Chief Executive of NHS Scotland. Now, sometimes other things get put into the role. So um, where I work, the chaplain is also number one on call for dead bodies pulled out of the river. Now, that might sound a little bit weird, but someone has to do that job. And it's a way of saying, well, we need to fund someone to do that. And we'll make it the chaplain so we can say that we have to have a 24-hour chaplain on call. They're being a bit creative with it. I suppose that's my point. But all health boards should have a chaplaincy service. Now, one of the great problems, of course, is that, as I was saying, some of the English health trusts, which they're called down here, have effectively got rid of their chaplaincy. The other thing, of course, is it's not just about chaplaincy. It's also, because chaplaincy sometimes gets very focused on inpatients. You know, the chaplain has to go to the special care baby unit because some baby's very ill and people want it baptized before it dies, you know, or they're going to the terminally ill people, or in a, a mental health hospital, they're perhaps working more with the inpatients. There's something here about how do we get out beyond the inpatients? Because mental health services, lots of them are delivered in the community, aren't they? Through outpatient clinics, through community mental health teams, through assertive outreach. Lots of people are living in supported accommodation of various different kinds. What does spirituality mean to them? Because chaplain based up at the hospital is not going to be enormously accessible to those people. So, so even where chaplains are working, we've still got the challenge of getting spirituality out there into everyday mental health activity. Okay, so next slide. Enough from me. Just in small groups, two, three, four people just around you, I'd like you to have a little bit of a think about what should the relationship between the NHS and churches be. I put this picture in just because I love it. This is the London Olympics where everyone sort of made the NHS symbol with torches and sort of span around in circles. You know, the NHS is, it's a British institution, isn't it? A bit like Terry Wogan. It's, it's kind of there. It's, it's in with the bricks, so to speak. And so is the Anglican Church. Okay, so the, and you know, we happen to be an Anglican Church there. There's other churches, obviously, as well. But what should the relationship be between these two great British institutions, Stephen Fry and Terry Wogan, if you want, or the NHS and the church? Should there be more? Should there be less? How should it work? So a few minutes' discussion among you guys.
That's a very good idea. Wow. I can't go too far that way because our feedback. Could you row? Yeah. That'd be great. Thanks. Okay, one minute more. Okay, then I'll draw that to a close. Okay, so to quote another British institution, I have my glamorous assistant, I hope, at the back, who's got a roving microphone. Or are we just looking for one? He's got it, fantastic, great. So does anyone want to feed back to that? Put your hand up and Adam will, will run to you. Couple of folk just down there. Give us a bit of feedback. What should we do about this? I don't know the answers. I'm just doing the seminar. Very true. So it's just saying that you know there needs to be integration from both sides. And one of the things I'm going to say later, might as well say it now, is that the church is out of its depth when it comes to serious medical problems, and the NHS is out of its depth when it comes to spiritual problems. You know, we might have a chaplaincy resource, but it, it's spread too thin. And you could argue that the church has lost it, lost its touch a little bit because it hasn't been running hospitals for a long time. Nor do most churches have hospitals, you know, slightly different in other parts of the world. But if, you know, if someone needs an operation or a psychiatric inpatient bed in this country, I don't know many churches that provide that, um, intensive care units, that kind of thing. So they both need each other. But, but likewise, you know, chaplaincy are never going to reach out far beyond the, the, the most acute situations. So there needs to be a bit of joint working there. And... I think there's also something that if you want to reach Christian people, you need churches to, to do that. A, a generic chaplaincy service will only bring certain skills. Now, many chaplains are Christians, but it, it is a primarily a generic service. Okay, yeah, lady at the back there. Oh, hello. Just to say that at the moment I'm doing training to become a spiritual care volunteer at our local church. 
Excellent. And, and what they're doing, they're, they're, they have discovered that people who get prayed for are getting better much quicker. And, but we're all volunteers. Yeah. So that, that's how they're doing it in our area. Great, definitely. And there's, so there's people who perhaps sit in the middle, if that makes sense, you know, pastoral care workers, um, listening, people who do listening, this sort of stuff, who, who need some Christian teaching, some, a little bit of teaching about listening skills, perhaps a basic education about common mental health problems. Mental health first aid is a fantastic resource. You know, you might run a first aid course in your church from St. John's Ambulance or something. You can run a mental health first aid course. You can equip 200 people to just be mental health first aiders out and about, knowing how to respond when, when someone is suicidal, for example. Yeah, right at the back. Yeah, so um, I'm, current, um, I'm a dual diagnosis patient and um, um, the, the best input has been from the NHS for me as far as my medical treatment. So I've got good psychiatrists, nurses and that around me, but um, I do believe that you know, there is a problem with the spirituality in the NHS. It's very new age. It's very oriented towards believing yourself. You can do it. Whereas the, the gospel is quite different. The gospel is, in fact, the opposite of that. And so I really think we do need more kind of input from the church. And so right now I'm trying to get more involved in, with my trust and, you know, try, I'm trying to bring that. Although it, I think the pro part of the problem is, is that they don't really want to hear it. So they're, they're willing to talk about spirituality, but they don't want to talk about God. They don't want to talk about Jesus. Yeah. So it's... Uh, I, I think you're right. And I mean, that touches partly on what I was saying before is that you know the, the spirituality is probably going to be generic now it I personally would agree with you I think I think the gospel is is a unique voice and to a certain extent it's opposite to humanistic spirituality that, that, that sort of says the answer lies within you I think there is a lot of wisdom out there though and these chaplains are people who sit with people who are, are dying are in pain, have been bereaved. You know, there, there is a, a, a lot of wisdom in there. It's, it's not just fluffy spirituality, if that makes sense. But I, I personally would agree with, with quite a bit of what you're saying, which is that we need to have that, that sort of edge to it. But we also have to have the sort of, is that realistically going to happen within, within generic chaplaincy services in the NHS? Or is this an opportunity for joint work and the kind of thing you're suggesting is that perhaps there's a generic chaplaincy service and then you you are bringing your voice and your faith into that as a witness and quite a few places will have a, a Catholic chaplain attached or a Muslim chaplain attached who will bring the distinctives of their faith into a wider chaplaincy agenda so it's great there's chaplaincy in your trust though really glad to, to hear that okay one one more I think just up at the front here maybe um Right, Rob, I don't quite know where this fits in. I'm throwing out a few random things. Number one, I had a fantastic chaplain looking after me when I was in a unit in the borders in Scotland who was extremely helpful. Um, but having been really, really ill, and somebody upstairs in Matt's thing was talking about the fact that quite often when you're going through psychiatric things, whatever depth that is, you know, spiritual stuff comes up. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I once thought I was Mary, thought my husband was Jesus, you know, those kind of things. 
And as soon as I started mentioning anything in the least bit spiritual, my psychiatrist and my CPNs would go into total panic, you know, get her into hospital, yep. you know, here we go, kind of thing. And, and I then moved down to Yorkshire, I'm very well on the whole, and I've had a new start, you know, and they don't have that experience of me, so they don't... But I still now, and I'm very well most of the time, but I know that when I'm a little bit elevated, whatever you want to call it, you know, I am more in tune kind of spiritually, mm. and it's, it's wonderful. You know, I see the trees brighter and the universe better. And the challenge is always stopping at that point, isn't and it? I do. And not going, I do. Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm pretty on the whole. Yeah. I don't go over the edge this time. And I think that sort of fits into, again, what the chap at the back was sort of saying, is that we need experts in the particular faiths involved in chaplaincy as well. And actually, I think, you know, most, most chaplains should know a reasonable amount about the faiths of um, different faiths, particularly the area that they're sort of serving. So, so I think that, that, that that's really important. And it's something that I think, you know, mental health professionals need not to overreact when anyone mentions the word Mary or, or Jesus <laughs> or something. I mean, I've, I've had some extremely unwell patients. You know, I've had one chap who, who basically lay down in the form of the cross waiting for the second coming and you know was still there a week later he was extremely ill and and that was a religious belief that was an illness but he also had a genuine faith and how you separate those those two apart so you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater you don't want to say all religious beliefs are delusional because clearly they're not and again something I'm going to say later but might as well say it now I was at the Royal College of Psychiatrists yesterday. Now, the Royal College has got 12, 13,000 members in this country who are psychiatrists. Over 3,000 of them are members of the Spirituality Special Interest Group. That means they've chosen to sign up to a Spirituality Special Interest Group list. They are saying spirituality is important in the care of our patients. We want to know more, and there's biannual days that are run. So, I mean, obviously, there's other people outside that group who are interested in spirituality, but to have one quarter of the college signed up to your special interest group suggests that people don't, you know, the, the, the stereotype 50 years ago was that, you know, no psychiatrists believe in God because we've all listened to Freud and Freud said it was just a neurotic substitute for an absent father. And, and that's not true anymore. I mean, in my own town of Edinburgh, there are 40, 50 psychiatrists of whom I know, 10-ish, are Christians, you know, so, so there's actually lots of Christians, lots of psychiatrists out there with an active spirituality, um, psychiatric nurses, you know, so, so there's a lot out there, and I think, I think the situation is changing a little bit. Okay, let's move on, just think about the next slide. I'll, in the last bit of the seminar, I want to have a little bit of a think about boundaries, because one of the questions is, how do I raise this? Now, the chap at the back was sort of saying he's going to bring his unique service user his story into the health trust and and you can do that because that's your story but how do you, I as a, a, a doctor tell my story because I am sort of bound by guidance as to how much I can share and how much I can't share and that sort of thing so what I wanted to do for the last little bit of the seminar is tell you what the law says okay because you you will hear stuff like you know Christians being sort of dragged up or dismissed or something for sharing their faith and actually usually what happens to those stories is they're overturned the hospitals are done for wrongful dismissal the Christian legal 
Institute get involved in their cases. These people have not broken laws, nor have they broken professional boundaries. But all we hear about in the news is people who've been struck off for daring to share their faith at work or something. So I thought I'd tell you what the law says, and then perhaps some ways to think about it. And it ultimately boils down to boundaries. We don't want a, a non-existent boundary where anyone can do anything they want. Neither do we want a rigid boundary because the NHS knows it's out of its depth with health in this country. It wants the church's help. Really, it does. And it's best days anyway. It wants the church's help. So we need to have a helpful discussion about boundaries. So the first bit of law I'm going to pop in. We're going to do law, guidance, and relationship. The law is the... Equality framework. Now, I have a nasty feeling that this has stripped out all of my clip art. So, what happens on the next slide? No, go back one. Okay, it can't cope with Microsoft 2007. There we go. Um, what is on there is the evolution of the Equality Act. So, in 2006, we had an Equality Act in this country, and this spoke about diversity strands. And they're the strands that you'd expect age, gender, sexuality, religion, etc. It said people should not be discriminated against on the basis of one of these strands. And it, it talked about vulnerable groups and things like this. This then resulted in some policy that came out that said we should be making sure that, for example, the NHS workforce reflects the demographics of the population it's serving. So where I used to work in Bradford, we had Urdu-speaking Muslim engagement workers, because 60% of city centre Bradford were Asian and Muslim. So you had to have that as, as part of what you were doing. The interesting thing is the successor to that, that resulted in things being a little bit PC mad, as I'm sure you can sort of appreciate. And when people mention words like equality, they think, oh, you know, that's PC gone mad, and you, 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 know, you, you can't call a blackboard a blackboard anymore, for example. It's not helpful. So they redid the Equality Act in 2010. And what the 2010 Equality Act is, it speaks about a single equality approach. And what that means is when I meet one of you, my first thought shouldn't be, is this person black? How do black people think? That shouldn't be my first thought. Or I should be saying to you, how do I need to change healthcare so that you feel as though you're being treated equally? Now, that's a very, very different dynamic. It still talks about protected characteristics, which include gender, race, sexuality, etc. So it still talks about those things, the 2010 Act. But it puts the onus on the healthcare trusts to take a single approach and to say to people, equality is self-defined. How do I need to change healthcare such that you feel you are not being discriminated against? Okay? Now, I think... This is fantastic. This is, this is a win for the church. Because what this means is that the NHS should be adapting itself to take account of Christian spirituality. Because that is the big spirituality in this country. And for people in this room who perhaps got a more active spirituality, they should be specifically... So, you know, you should be able to talk to your doctor about healing without getting laughed out of town. And if you can't, you should take them to court because you're being discriminated against. Now, that's quite a powerful statement. I'm happy to say that and put that on the internet. Okay? So, the Equality Act means that we need to be dealing equally and fairly, but it's about asking people. It's about saying to them, 
What are the issues for you? Now, some people will say, well, I'm very old and I don't want to be overlooked. And, you know, so some of the, the standard themes are there, but it's a proactive thing. It also means that we can't just do censuses. We can't just sort of tick boxes and say, oh, we've asked everybody if they want a visit from the chaplain. That won't do. That's old Equality Act. New Equality Act means that spirituality and these protected characteristics have to be embedded in the way with how we do it. And we should be saying to every person this question, how might our service have to adapt to take account of your protected characteristics if you identify with one of these things? So that's the Equality Act. I haven't got time to go into it. If you want more on it, there's a seminar from a couple of years ago when Mind and Soul did a conference in Telford. And the government's advisor on equality and ethnic minorities is doing a seminar on the Equality Act. So go and listen to, to that. That's the one to listen to. Guidance. What can doctors do? What must doctors do? Now, I've deliberately said what must doctors do. The GMC, the General Medical Council guidance, is not law. If you do not follow this, you have not broken a law. You might be struck off and you might not be on the register anymore, but you haven't broken a law. There's a difference between guidance and law. A couple of years ago, the GMC redid their personal beliefs and medical practice. You can download this from the GMC website. It's a very forward-thinking, very permissioning document. The first thing it says is it says all doctors have personal beliefs and should be free to express them. That's what it says right at the start of the document. I'm quite surprised by that. I thought doctors were meant to be grey, not saying anything about yourself. GMC is saying no. Doctors have got the same rights as everybody else to express their personal beliefs. They do say, obviously, that respect and good practice is key. They do say that you shouldn't impose your beliefs in ways that cause distress or ways that are not directly relevant to patient care. Okay? So what that means is if I've got a half-hour appointment with somebody and we spend 20 minutes talking about the gospel and only 10 minutes talking about what we're meant to be talking about. I am imposing on patient care, okay? But there is nothing in the GMC guidance that says as long as I am not imposing on patient care, there's nothing in the GMC guidance that says you mustn't talk about your faith at work or with your patients. Nothing in there, okay? Now, obviously, you're not going to do it all the time. Obviously, you're not going to um, beat people over the head with the Bible. Obviously, you need to be very careful with the power imbalance that can exist between psychiatrists and patients. All of those things are there. But my point is, there's nothing in the GMC guidance that says you can't. Okay? We need to find ways to be human and to do jobs and to express our spiritual beliefs. The next slide I've spoken about already... Um, a little bit, but just to say that in the MRC Psych is the exam that psychiatrists have to do after medical school, a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. In that, there is a module on spirituality. All junior psychiatrists should be being taught what a spiritual crisis is, how it can present with a psychotic episode. And that doesn't necessarily mean they've got schizophrenia. Okay? For example, they should have a basic understanding of the faiths. I mean, when I worked in Central Bradford, if I didn't understand the mix of Islam and indigenous spirituality from the north of Pakistan that existed in most people in central Bradford, I would not be able to do my job as a psychiatrist. I had to go find that out. And if, if you're a good psychiatrist, you should understand the predominant spiritualities in the area that you cover. 
And the spirituality special interest group is trying to do a lot about that. The question, I suppose, is how do you raise matters of faith? And it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is that patients want their psychiatrists to cover this topic, okay? If you're a Christian walking in to see a psychiatrist and all they do is ask about your biological symptoms of depression and, you know, whether you were abused when you were young or something like that, and they don't talk about what's keeping you going, personally, I think that's bad practice. Patients want their psychiatrist to ask about this. They don't want to feel like they're talking to machines. This, these, these words are from surveys by Mind and by the Mental Health Foundation. There's nothing Christian about this. People are saying, I don't want to talk to a machine. I want to talk to a human being. One of the things I like about um, developments in, in psychotherapies for, for personality disorders at the moment is we've moved beyond the sort of psychotherapist who is the sort of distant figure, the, the blank slate. Things like mentalization, things like dialectical behavioral therapy allow you to say to people, I'm gutted that you self-harmed after our session last week. I thought we'd made real progress. <laughs> or you, how, how could you not think that anyone would be affected? I would be affected. I've been working with you for a long time. Modern therapeutic approaches allow you to express honest emotions, and that's good. And people also just want to find a bit more about you. I mean, I've got photographs of the family in my consulting room, and people take an interest in it. You know, they're not in your face or anything like that, but people want to know a little bit about their psychiatrist. The other thing is that we know how to ask these difficult questions. Mental health professionals have been asking difficult questions about suicide, about childhood sexual abuse for a long time. We don't go up to someone and say, were you sexually abused when you were young? It doesn't work like that. What you do is you, you approach it gently and cautiously and sensitively and say, you know, were, were there difficult times when you were growing up? And, you know, you, you, you approach it through a series of questions. We call them funnel questions. Likewise, if you're talking about suicide, you know, first of all, you say, you know, when it gets bad, how, how bad does it get? And you're sort of starting off with gradual questions coming in. You can do the same with faith. And the way I'd suggest asking about faith, and I do this with virtually every patient I see, because I think asking about personal faith is an important part of inquiry that any psychiatrist should do. I'm saying things like this. You pop the next slide up. So the Christian Medical Fellowship would recommend a question like, do you have a faith that helps you at a time like this? I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. I think anyone should be able to ask that question, even if they don't have a faith themselves. If you want a slightly less question, uh, from the Mental Health Foundation, what gives you hope and meaning? How can we make you feel connected to this while you are with us, connected to your hope and meaning? Again, it's that proactive equality question. How can we connect you to your source of hope and meaning while you're within our service? That is a good equality question. That is a question that will help people of true faith. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so I don't see any problem with asking those questions. Every mental health assessment should contain questions like that in, in my view. And if it doesn't, well, you've got the Equality Act to fall down on. People are, people are breaking the law if they're not asking those kinds of questions in the assessment. We do, however, need to understand that perhaps there are a large, I'm going to say minority, of mental health professionals who don't have a strong faith. I actually think the vast majority of mental health professionals have quite strong faiths. They love what they do. 
they're people of meaning and purpose. They might not identify themselves as Christians, but they will get this language. That's why we've got 3,000 psychiatrists who are in the spirituality group. But perhaps we do need to break it down a little bit for people who are not spiritual thinkers, if that makes sense. So on the next slide, I'll just put a couple of things out about here. There's something in here about making the professional feel comfortable. One of the things that I often get asked is, should Christians go and see a Christian psychiatrist or a Christian psychologist or something like that? My usual response is, is no. You know, if you wanted to go and see a surgeon, you'd go and see the best surgeon, wouldn't you? You wouldn't go and see a Christian surgeon. You'd want the guy with the good knife and the good hand, the steady hand, two eyes, etc. You know, you'd go and see the best surgeon. You wouldn't go for the, 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 the Christian surgeon who wasn't the best. So, there's, there's something in here, there's a lady called Tara Gormley who did her doctorate of psychology on this as to whether or not Christian patients should go and see Christian psychologists and she came to the very clear answer, no. And the reason for that is that actually when two Christians get together they do shorthand. So they sort of say, oh the Lord bless you. Or some, which means a whole bunch of stuff, doesn't it? Have you seen those things that Adrian Plast does about you know, Christian shorthand and how not to use them? or Christianese, or whatever it is. But, but Christians fall into shorthand, and they'll say things like, um, oh, um, I, 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 um, I was really encouraged by last week's sermon. And the Christian psychologist goes, oh, it's great, fantastic. You know, that's, I'm so glad that you're going to church. Whereas actually what a, a secular CBT therapist would say would be, can we just go back to that? You said you were really encouraged by that. What happened? What thoughts were going through your mind at the time? What did you do as a result of feeling encouraged? Um, what did you do the day after? How did you try and... Could we set up some experiments where you can embed that encouragement a bit more into your recovery? A, a secular therapist will, won't slip into that shorthand. They will actually possibly be a better therapist because they're genuinely wanting to sort of find out what works for you and build it up. And the great thing is you get to share the gospel with them because they really want to know what makes you tick. And, you know, you might end up growing and deepening in your own spirituality, not having your spirituality challenged. So, so there's definitely advantage in going to see someone who's not, a, not a, a, a Christian. But how might you do it? This is just a little sort of thing that we developed in Bradford on the next slide there. That when you're getting people better... Most people should be able to support behavioural activity. So, for example, when I was working with Islamic clients in, in Bradford, if they were going to mosque once a week on Friday, I was happy because at least they were going out of the house once a week. Okay? At least they're doing something. At least they've got activity. At least they've got a community. I'm going to have to leave some stuff up to the Holy Spirit. But they're getting out and about. Anyone should be able to encourage going to church, even if you don't think church is a good thing. From a recovery from depression point of view, you should be able to encourage behavioral activity. The cognitive bit is a little bit difficult, which is sometimes people have negative beliefs as a result of their faith. They think they've sinned or committed the unforgivable sin, and perhaps that needs unpacking. But most Christians will also get positive beliefs that God is their father, that there's a hope in the future, that, um, that God gives me peace. You know, a, a good therapist should draw on those positive Christian beliefs you have and, and try and increase them. And likewise, the big existential question, you know, it adds meaning to your life. How can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Let's put that into the formulation. Not as something that's going to happen now, because we've got a journey, but this is part of our goal, is to reconnect you to your faith. 
that can be part of a formulation, There's, even if you're working with someone who's not a Christian. So it's a model that we sort of developed in Bradford, but I think it's helpful. Okay. I'm going to be quiet for a couple of minutes and just ask you to think about these questions on the next slide. And then we'll be needing to wrap up because people are going to start invading us again fairly soon. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for you in, in your church and how your church can relate to the NHS? What does this mean in your place of work if you work in the NHS or other places that are covered by rules, guidances and relationships? What will you take away from today? Something encouraging something challenging. So if you want to spend a few minutes just turning to your neighbours and discussing that and then I'll wrap up. finished in two minutes so I'm just going to do I won't do any roving mic stuff so yeah well we're hoping everyone else yeah are they finished downstairs yet what would be quite good is to sort of go around and run around good and feel free to stand at the back and just tell people to come on in um mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So people are starting to come in from the other seminars. Sandy, can you just go forward two or three slides? Keep going forward. Next one. Stop. If you go to the Mind and Soul website and type in NHS or spirituality in the NHS, you'll get this page, and as you can see, there's lots of resources on that. On the next slide, <coughs> on the next slide, Sandy, there's two books I'd really recommend. Psychology for Christian Ministry. Anyone wanting to learn a little bit about psychology from a Christian viewpoint, that's a great book. And Spirituality and Psychiatry is the book from the Royal College Group, all about the work that they've been doing. So I'm going to leave you there and we'll let folk come in for the next seminar. And Sandy, if we start the video in two minutes, that'd be great. Thank you.